You're listening to episode 202 of Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. In this broadcast, the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchaborg, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. In this episode, Dr. Cornelis Venema provides an in-depth examination of question and answer 80 of the Heidelberg Catechism, focusing on its critique of the Catholic Mass. Dr. Venema highlights two major critiques made by the Catechism against the Mass. First, charging that the Mass constitutes an unbiblical, repetitive sacrifice, undermining the completeness of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. Second, critiquing the Mass as an idolatrous worship of the physical bread and wine of the Eucharist, charging that elevating and adoring the elements leads to idolatry. In addition to discussing those two major critiques, Dr. Venema is going to move on and examine the relationship between question and answer 80 and the Council of Trent, the 16th century Catholic council that affirmed the doctrine of transubstantiation and the sacrificial nature of the Mass. Here's Dr. Venema to speak more about it. In our first podcast on the somewhat controversial, to put it, rather in an understated way, question and answer 80 in the Heidelberg Catechism on the Popish Mass and its difference from the Sacrament of the Lord's Supper. I provided a a broad sketch of the background for the preparation of the Catechism and the particular interest Lecter III had regarding the doctrine of the Sacrament of the Lord's Supper and debates with Lutheranism. And in this particular case, question and answer 80 with the Roman Catholic Church. What I want to do in this podcast, this second podcast, is address the question and answer itself and take note of what it says about that difference. And if I may, I'm going to read the question and answer and then identify what are the two broad charges or features of the Roman Catholic view that the Catechism condemns. So the question is this, what difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? And the the answer in the English translation that I have in front of me is this, the Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have full pardon of all our sins by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that by the Holy Spirit we are engrafted into Christ, who according to his human nature is now not on earth but in heaven, at the right hand of God his Father, and wills there to be worshipped by us. Let me just insert uh, an observation. That last section in the first paragraph of this answer, first section of the answer, is quite clearly addressing what I talked about earlier in the first session, uh, dissatisfaction with the Lutheran view of how Christ could be bodily present in, with, and under the elements of the sacrament, wherever it is administered, the so-called ubiquity of the glorified, exalted body and blood of Christ. But now it comes to the the, uh, specific complaint regarding the Mass. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead have not the forgiveness of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is still daily offered for them by the priests and that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine and is therefore to be worshipped in them. And thus the Mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and passion of Jesus Christ and an accursed, 
idolatry or some English renderings sounds a little softer. Don't use the word accursed idolatry. Use the word condemnable idolatry. Now, if you sort out what the Heidelberg Catechism is complaining about in terms of the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Mass, the two features are very obvious. The first is the teaching, which was set forth by the Council of Trent late in September of 1562. As I said before, it's probably the occasion for the inclusion of this question and answer. As an unbloody sacrifice of Christ— That is to say, Christ in his death upon the cross was sacrificing himself and was sacrificed in a bloody manner, whereas in the Mass, Christ is sacrificed at the altar by a priest acting in his name and place in an unbloody manner. And that sacrifice, unbloody, in the celebration and administration of the Mass, occurs every time and whenever, and that's why you get the language in the, of the Catechism, that Christ is being daily offered on behalf of believers in the Mass by priests. Now, the objection that the Catechism is making lies in the language daily offered or offered again and again or offered whenever a priest in an unbloody manner in the administration of the Mass presents Christ as a propitiatory sacrifice for the sins and for the benefit of those on whose behalf the Mass is celebrated. So the Mass, and this is a tricky point because the Roman Catholic view responds to the Reformers on this by arguing, well, it's not another sacrifice that in that respect, when the Mass is celebrated, diminishes the sacrifice that was once made by Christ, to use the language of the author of Hebrews, once for all. It is the same sacrifice now offered daily or whenever the Mass is administered, in an unbloody manner. The language that's used quite expressly in the uh, statement of Trent is the following. It's a bloody sacrifice once to be accomplished on the cross, but now represented, and the memory thereof remaining even unto the end of the world and its saving virtue or power being applied for the remission of those sins which we daily committed. So that Christ is offered up to God the Father, his very body and blood, under the species of bread and wine, and under the symbols of the same things by duly constituted priests of the new covenant. So the the objection of the catechism is this diminishes, calls into question the sufficiency, the perfection, the once-for-allness of the one and only bloody sacrifice that Christ offered of himself when he was crucified. The second objection, I'll come back to whether this is a valid complaint on the part of 
the authors of the Catechism at the time of its writing in just a moment. The other objection that is made in this particular question and answer, and they're related because how can Christ be offered if Christ is not bodily present uh, and physically present when the sacrifice of the Mass is presented? Well, he, as a matter of fact, is. He is present in his body and blood because the body and blood of our Lord, according to Roman Catholic teaching, and this goes back to the fourth letter in council already, a consensus was achieved in 1245 that by a miracle in response to, as the priest declares and issues the words of consecration regarding the the elements, the bread and the wine, the bread and the wine become, through the miracle of transubstantiation, the actual body and blood of Christ. Now, in terms of the form or the outward appearance of the bread and the wine, it, it retains, to use an Aristotelian distinction, the accidents, the appearance of bread, tastes like bread, looks like bread, uh, but isn't bread because as to its substance has become the very body and blood of Christ, both the, the, the two elements together. Um, so what the, what the catechism authors say about that is that it, in terms of the administration of the Mass, leads to a form of idolatry where you actually venerate worship with a worship that is owed alone to Christ himself, to God, the elements, as they're elevated, it's not accidental that the elevation of the host and the Roman Catholic practice of administering the sacrament is a particularly striking feature. It's also not accidental that you kneel before the altar as you receive the actual body and blood of Christ not an accident either that you participate in one kind, not two kinds. The cup is withheld, at least in terms of ordinary practice at this time, for fear of any kind of desecration of the actual spilling of the blood of Christ, so that it's safer to give only the wafer to place it upon the mouth of the recipient. But you also have in the... Um, Council of Trans-Representation of the Mass. Now, I mentioned in my preceding podcast the session of the council that took place in 1562 in September. Already in October of 1551, uh, 11 years prior, the Council of Trent had issued an earlier decree on the decree regarding the Holy Sacrament of the Eucharist. And in that decree, they had set forth this view of the changing of the elements of bread and wine through priestly consecration and by the miracle of transubstantiation into the actual body and blood of Christ. And it's very instructive. I would encourage my listeners, if you ever have the opportunity, to read the way in which that is represented at that session from 1551, because they make very clear that those who receive the sacrament receive the body and blood of Christ in the transubstantiated bread and wine, 
may not only adore and venerate the host as it is elevated, as it is at particular feast day observances or festival paraded by solemn procession through the streets, when it is presented by an individual priest who administers the sacrament of the Mass with no members of the body of Christ present, or alternatively, does so as an offering of the Mass on behalf of the dead, or in its language about the preservation of the consecrated elements in the sacrarium for subsequent disposing of the actual body and blood of Christ. Let me read a summary statement from that session that says the following, the august sacrament of the Holy Eucharist after the consecration of the bread and wine, our Lord Jesus Christ, true God and man, is truly, really, and substantially contained under the species of those sensible things. For neither are those things mutually repugnant, that our Savior himself always sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven according to the natural mode of existing, and that nevertheless he may be in many other places sacramentally present. They go on to say that the worship that is offered to Christ, who is not simply represented but is substantially the bread and wine venerated, that that cult and veneration, and I quote, renders a worship of Latria, which is due to the true God and to this most holy sacrament. So the, the worship, according to that session, the veneration, the elevation, what is ascribed to, given to, the bread and wine is the worship that is owed to and given to Christ himself, who is true God and true man, and who is substantially present under the accidents, but now transubstantiated elements of bread and wine. Now, I belabor that point a bit because the real question that has to be asked firstly from a historical perspective, regarding the admittedly rather strong and um, striking language of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day, or question and answer 80, is does it it accurately reflect what the Roman Catholic Church believed and professed and stipulated at the Council of Trent in the 16th century? And uh, my short answer to that though I'll say it a little bit by way of elaboration, is absolutely, on both counts. Calvin has a particularly strong statement about the notion that if you say the Mass is not another sacrifice, but a prolonging or a perpetuating or even a repeating or another word that is literally used at the Council of Trent, a representing of the body and blood of Christ upon an altar by a priest, and the priest in question is 
Christ as he acts in and through his appointed representatives, offering himself through them afresh daily whenever the Mass is being celebrated. You simply have denied, undeniably, you have said that the sacrifice that Christ in a bloody fashion manner offered upon the cross is not finished, needs to be represented, is not finished. If I may, I think the uh, book of Hebrews on this question is crystal clear. The one and only high priest of the New Testament economy, our Lord Jesus Christ, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who is our only high priest, beside whom there is no other high priest. Once he made that sacrifice, as the author of Hebrews argues so uh, explicitly in chapters 9 and 10, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. No priest in the new covenant economy need any longer to be standing in front of an altar. The one priest who made the once-for-all sacrifice sufficient, perfect, not to be repeated or renewed, prolonged, or in any sense of the term, extended in a daily manner in an unbloody fashion, is gone before us behind the curtain, and on the basis of that sacrifice once for all offered sufficient to our need, makes intercession for us. Uh, What I'm getting at is I don't think the catechism in any way, whatever, either exaggerates or misrepresents the seriousness of what Calvin calls the signal dishonor that is done to that sacrifice Christ made once for all, never to be made again uh, upon the cross. Think about it, that there are priests in the New Testament economy offering an unbloody sacrifice daily for the dead, uh, for those in purgatory, uh, in addition to what Christ did once for all, finished, completed. It's a very serious charge, but I think it's warranted. The same holds true for the issue of, is this idolatry? you don't like the word condemnable or accursed, let's just call it idolatry. Well, anytime you worship as though that which is worshiped, adored, venerated with the worship of Latria in a manner that is given and deservingly so given only to Christ himself, you have substituted something earthly, something other than the Christ, seated at the Father's right hand, as the object and instrument of a worship owed alone to him. And that is a textbook definition, to give to something creaturely what may only be given to God, is idolatry, idolatrous worship. It's to substitute for the one who is worthy of our worship something else. Now, you could always respond to that by saying, well, you misunderstand because the uh, elements are become by the miracle of transportation, the actual 
body and blood of Christ. Well, I'm going to return to this in the third session uh, and tease out a little more what is entailed by and meant by idolatry and why, in my judgment, not only at the time of the writing of this catechism, but also at the present time, continues to be a valid and appropriate, even necessary, refutation and rejection of what is taught about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in the Roman Catholic understanding of the Mass. Next time, Dr. Venema wraps up this series with an episode on the ongoing legacy and relevancy of Q&A 80 for today and answers the question of whether its critiques are still valid when considering contemporary Roman Catholicism. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider subscribing and sharing it with friends or family. Your support helps us bring more engaging content to your ears and helps us foster not just a community of lifelong learners, but thoughtful practitioners. I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for listening. See you in the next episode.